baptisms are electrifying, aren't they? They're tangible signs of what the Lord Jesus is doing and what a blessing it is to be able to celebrate Jesus' good and powerful work. If you would take your Bibles this morning, would you turn them to the book of 2 Peter chapter 1? And we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 15. 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to set aside the book of First and Second Samuel. We finished First Samuel last Sunday, and we're going to set it aside till sometime in August and then work through in the fall and finish that. And what we're going to do is we're going to set our eyes on the culture for three weeks together. So the sermon is Second Peter, chapter 1, verse 12. Hear the word of God. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Oh, Father, we ask you now to use your word powerfully in our hearts and in our minds. We confess that we often get confused and turned around, and so we pray, would you bring precious clarity to us through the preaching of your word. We know that you delight to do this, and so we ask it in Jesus' good name. Amen. So, in the month of June, you can't help but notice that there is a flag that dominates all the other flags, even the flag of this very own country. And it's the, the multicolored flag, and it's virtually everywhere. The rainbow flag, about as omnipresent as an object can be outside of God. It's perched on the top of flagpoles of churches and schools and government buildings. Businesses make their employees wear it on their name badges. You find it on products at the grocery store. They litter our neighbor's yards as you walk across the city. And even as you watch your favorite baseball team, there you find the flag as well. And so here's a question that we need to ask. What is a flag? What is a flag? Or to put it more specifically, what is this rainbow flag doing in the month of June that we see surrounding us? What is it doing? And so a few matters come to mind as we meditate on a flag. Well, first of all, a flag is a matter of representation. So just pull up to the border. You're driving south. You pull up to the border, and what do you see? You see a flag of stars and stripes. And then on the way home, you're driving, and there you see another flag as you're going north at the border. You see a flag with a big red maple leaf on it. Well, in each of these cases, the flag represents something. It's representing a country. You see the flag, and you know where you're at. You're entering into the United States of America. You're entering it back into Canada. Flags are symbolic in nature. They always point to a greater reality, like a country or a cause or a movement. Second... A flag is a matter of allegiance. So as a child, I grew up in my elementary school, beginning the day by saying the Pledge of Allegiance. We would all stand together as little children, take our right hand, put it on our heart, we would face the flag, and we would all mumble and bumble our way through the words. And that might sound a bit strange to you, but there was a point to doing that as elementary students. We would all stand and face the flag, putting our hand on our heart, reciting these words so that our loyalty would grow to the flag and what the flag 
represents. And third, a flag is a matter of dominion. So think of a battle. Older, the better. So you can picture it in your mind that the battle lines are formed, one side here, one side there, and the battle begins. There's a, a great skirmish and fight, and after a while, after the dust settles, one army wins and the other army is fleeing and running. And what is the first thing the victorious army does after the battle? Well, they grab their flag and they, they plant it on the conquered ground. They won the battle, and so they're saying, this is ours. And so as we think about these three matters, they give us a bit of clarity as we think about the month of June. What is the rainbow flag doing? Well, the rainbow flag is representing a greater reality. It's representing the LGBTQ plus movement. And everywhere you go, as you see the flag, it's, it's preaching the dogmas and the doctrines of that movement. Second, the rainbow flag is a matter of allegiance. Those who fly the flag, those who wear the flag have what? They've given their loyalty to the cause. And you can just think about it as a, as a cultural moment. What is our culture doing? Well, we're like the elementary students. As I was growing up, we're all standing up, we're facing the flag, and we're saying the pledge. We're going through these motions so that our loyalty would increase, that the factions for the cause and what the flag represents would increase in our hearts. And even more importantly, the rainbow flag is a matter of dominion. The institutions, the businesses, the individuals who fly the flag and wear the flag belong to the flag. They've been conquered and plundered by the movement. And so we're in the month of June, the flag is everywhere, and we ask, well, what is the Christian supposed to do about all of this? That's an important question to ask. Carl Truman, in a recent piece for World Magazine, writes the following. I think it's right. He says, I want to read it for you. The use of the rainbow flag should be particularly egregious to Christians. It is the primary instrument by which the LGBTQ plus movement asserts its ownership of the culture. And it is the means of telling those of us who dare to dissent that we should have no place in the public square anymore. It tears at God's creation order and design for family relations and social stability. It is also a blasphemous description of a sacred symbol taking that which was intended as a sign of God's love and faithfulness and our dependence upon him and turning it into an aggressive symbol of human autonomy and sexual decadence. This makes, Truman concludes, this makes Pride Month something with which no Christian should have any sympathy with whatsoever. And I set that quote before you because I think Truman is spot on. And he's giving us a start. He defines for us the emotional response of the Christian as we observe what's going all around us. All that's going on as we see it happening should be egregious to the Christian, meaning that we should find this appalling and grievous, even grotesque. Again, we, we, what we see going on around us shouldn't create within us a, a feeling of sympathy. And what does that mean? Well, it means something rather simple. We don't have an ounce of support for that agenda. Not a single ounce. But what Truman gives us in that quote is just a start. We need more than right feelings and proper emotions. And so for this week and the next two, we're going to be considering what ought the Christian response to be. If we believe the scriptures and if we've been called by Christ to be his disciples, how ought we to live here? Well, we began this morning with a scripture reading from 2 Peter 1, 12 through 15. And these four verses come at the conclusion of Peter's opening chapter. 
And what he's doing in the opening chapter, he's, he's, he's rallying the church to pursue virtue that accompanies, that fits their salvation in Christ. And on the surface, as we read, as you look at the broader context of the four verses that we read, it, it doesn't seem like it has much to do with the, the subject at hand. Peter doesn't mention a rainbow flag or homosexuality or transgenderism or drag queen shows. So why are we looking at these four verses? Well, I start here not principally for the content that Peter gives to us in chapter 1. I start here because we see in these four verses Peter's method of pastoring the church. So just look at the wider context with me in chapter 1. Peter doesn't really say anything that's all that new. So in verses 3 and 4, Peter reminds the church of the salvation that they've received from God. Then in verses 5 through 8, he calls the church to pursue virtue and to do it vigorously. This is what your life is about, adding virtue to virtue after virtue. And then in verses 10 and 11, he grounds all of this in eternal realities. He says, entrance into the eternal kingdom. And so what is Peter doing here? These are all reminders. Has Peter just run out of old things to say? Has Peter become like an old man who just says the same stories again and again to anyone who will listen? What is he doing? Well, Peter makes clear his purpose in the four verses we read together. He is conscious that he has spent the first chapter reminding these people of what they already know. He says this in verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Even more, Peter states that this way of reminding is his pastoral philosophy. It is is his way of doing ministry. Verse 13, he says, I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. And why we ask, is Peter doing all of this reminding? Well, he puts it like this in verse 15. I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So do you see it? The truth is right there. As Christians, we need to be reminded of the gospel again and again and again, and not only of the gospel, but of the truth found in the scriptures, from ethical exhortations to the very doctrine that upholds and holds together the Christian faith. Peter's saying, Christian, you need to be reminded. And so my aim this morning is Peter's aim. I desire in this sermon to to stir you up by way of reminder. I'm going to do this work of reminding by going to the biblical story and giving you a biblical theology of sexuality. And what that means simply is we're going to take our arms and we're going to try to wrap our arms around the whole Bible and what the Bible teaches, moving from fall, moving from creation to fall, and finally to Jesus and all that Jesus means for us. So let's get to work and try to wrap our arms around the Bible. So the story of sexuality begins on the very first page of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, there's this flurry of activity. The Lord is creating. And finally, on day 6, the Lord turns his attention to his last act, that of the creation of man. And I want to slow down and focus in on this and take it piece by piece. So we can start in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. The text says, Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Well, what does this mean? Well, we can say this, man is something. Specifically, man is the image of God, created in the the likeness of his creator. 
That say something rather profound about us. We, we are something. Man's identity is this, that of a child of the creator. And the text does not only tell us about what man is, but also what a man must do. So we continue reading in the same verse, man must rule over all of God's creation. Genesis 1.26, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Second, we see that man is to do something else. Man is to make more man. So to take dominion and then be fruitful and multiply, we see it in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So we're getting some understanding of man. But then in the middle of all of this instruction, we hear this word about man, and this is important for us. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created him. And this starts to fill out our understanding. Man, the image of God, consists of both sons and daughters. Man who must rule and reign over the entire world must do it as kings and queens. Man who must fill and multiply the earth must do it as fathers and mothers. And as we look at this text, there's, there's nothing androgynous about the creation account. Men and women are not interchangeable, not interchangeable in biology or nature or calling or roles. We're not Lego guys that you can just take apart and, and switch out parts as you will. Rather, as we reflect upon the word of God, we see that for God's plan to work, men really need to be men and, and women really need to be women and men really need women to be women and women really need men to be men. That's how it works. And this is something we see in the creation account. It wants us to get that. Genesis 2.18. It is not good for the man to be alone. Therefore, a man needs a helper fit for him. And the woman then comes from the man, literally so. From the man, he, he built a woman, Genesis 2.22. And her, her genesis is from the man, for she was taken out of the man, Genesis 2.23. And conversely, now all men are forever dependent upon the woman, for the woman, Genesis 3, verse 20, is the mother of all living. For God's plan to work, men need to be men, and women need to be women. And men really need women to be women, and women really need men to be men. And so we see that in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And so with that, we have to ask the most important question, so what? What does this have to do with us? What relevance do these two chapters have with us? And as you listen to the world, the world decries such teaching as myth, that it's something that needs to be de deconstructed or, or thrown aside for greater enlightenment and progress. But here is the issue. If we, we take the Bible seriously, which we have to take the Bible seriously, we can't push aside Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and all the teaching it gives us about what a man is. And we can't push aside the creation account because what the rest of the scriptures do is they take the creation account and the norms that it presents to us and it enforces those norms upon us. What you find biblical writer doing after biblical writer doing is taking the norms of Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and bringing them to bear upon the communities that they're ministering to. The Bible isn't a schizophrenic book. Its teaching is consistent and it builds. So when you come to Leviticus chapter 18 verse 22, which says this, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is abomination. What's happening here? 
When Moses is ministering to the people of God as they're about to enter into the land and inhabit it, and he's taking the creation norms and he's pulling them and he's pushing them upon the people that they might live and please the Lord. Or when you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Paul says this to the church. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. What's Paul doing? Well, he, he sees God revealed in nature. He sees the norms of Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and he, he's taking those norms and he's applying them upon the church in Corinth. He sees these two chapters as fundamental to all reality. And so we have the creation account in front of us, and we read these two passages, Leviticus 18, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. Do not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we, we receive those words, and we, we meditate on their stark condemnations, and they, they begin to alert us to a problem. Humanity hasn't kept the creation norms that God has given us. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, collectively, as a humanity, we've been seeking to throw off the yoke of God's law. And so we ask, well, what has gone wrong, and how can we explain what has gone wrong? Well, we need to move forward in the storyline of the Bible, and we can move forward in the storyline of the Bible to Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, we find the clearest condemnation of the LGBTQ plus dogma and lifestyle in the Bible. And what Paul does in Romans chapter 1 is he makes sense of all that's going on around us. And so as a good theologian, Paul begins with first principles. He wants to explain to his readers why there is disorder and confusion and madness in the world. Why is the world as it is? And so what Paul does as a good theologian, he, he traces this back to the beginning. And at the beginning, there was this seismic exchange that took place. And Paul writes about it in chapter 1, verse 25. He says, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And we have to understand that this deal that humanity brokered for itself was a bad one. It was a raw one. Humanity in this exchange was bargaining for freedom and autonomy but only found slavery because of this exchange. Slavery to sin. Humanity was looking for some sort of upward movement, some sort of ascendancy, but ultimately it's degraded. And so Paul, in his theological reasoning, goes on and he tells us the results of this raw deal in chapter 1, verse 21. He says, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And we can connect this to the story we've been telling. This is a great tragedy. Just think about it, the sons and daughters of God, the, the kings and queens of the earth, the mothers and fathers of all living are now foolish and futile, and their hearts are dark. And so we ask, well, what is God going to do with all of this? What does he do with these people? And what God does in response should terrify us. There is no lightning bolts from heaven or sulfur falling from the sky. No, what does God do to these people? He does this. He lets them have what they want. And Paul repeats this phrase in Romans chapter 1. He says, God gave them up. God gave them up. God lets the folly and futility reign and rule in the heart of man. And at this point, Paul is not content to just let his theology of sin and rebellion sit in the abstract. He wants to push it on his readers. He wants his readers to, to see 
the grotesque nature of this exchange that took place and, and feel the weight of God's displeasure. So what does God do? What does Paul do? Where does he go? Where does he go next in his argument? How does he illustrate this? How does he make us feel it and see it? Well, his next step in his argument is he transitions from sin and the results of sin, folly and futility, and he immediately illustrates it by going to homosexuality. Chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, Paul writes, Their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in them the due penalty for their error. This is a rather interesting connection for Paul to make. Why does Paul do this? What is he seeing here? Why does he move from this exchange and then he illustrates it with this? And as we think about it in our cultural moment, it's a bit awkward. Paul, why couldn't you have talked about something else? Maybe like stealing. We don't like that. Maybe something about lying. Why not that? Why do you go to homosexuality right away? Well, there's a reason. Richard Hayes, a Christian ethicist, analyzes Romans chapter 1, and he makes this statement, and I want to read it for you because it's profound. He says this, in Romans chapter 1, Paul portrays homosexual behavior as a sacrament of the anti-religion of human beings who refuse to honor God as creator. When human beings engage in homosexual activity, they enact an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual reality, the rejection of the creator's design. Thus, Paul's choice of homosexuality as an illustration of human depravity is not random. It serves his purpose by providing a vivid image of humanity's primal rejection of the sovereignty of their God. That's an interesting insight. What is homosexual behavior? He's saying, Paul's saying, it's a, a sacrament of our anti-religion against God. Just work that through with me. We need to understand that. We celebrate two sacraments as a church. We celebrated baptism this morning. What does baptism do? It, it represents what we're all about as a church. Dead with Christ, alive to God. We celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We draw near to the table and we remember the, the wonders of the new covenant. A Savior has shed his blood for our sins and we belong to him forever. And as we think about it, this is what the rainbow flag and everything the rainbow flag represents does for sin and rebellion. It gets at the root and heart of human rebellion and presents it all in the most dramatic and concrete way possible. A man rejecting his manhood and a woman rejecting her womanhood. In this sacrament of sin, humanity rebels against the very being that they were made, that of being sons and daughters, abdicating their calling of dominion, throwing their, their crowns on the ground, and even worse, doing whatever it takes so as not to become a father or a mother. And so as we think about this story, we move from creation and we see the glory of humanity presented. Kings and queens, sons and daughters, fathers and mothers, and we move ahead in the story and Genesis 3 happens and Paul interprets it in Romans chapter 1 and humanity takes a massive nosedive. And as we think about the story, it's bleak. It's a catastrophe. And what makes it worse is we live right now in the wreckage of all of this. It's around us. Humanity is a bunch of smoldering ruins. And we can barely remember the glory of our humanity as it once was. 
And what makes it worse than this is that we're proud of it. So what can we do? Well, mercifully, as we read God's book, this isn't the end of the story, and we need to turn the page to the best page, the word of the gospel. So let me preach the gospel to you, because the gospel fixes all of this. The word of the gospel is this, John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And brothers and sisters, this was no androgynous flesh. A son was born to the Virgin Mary, and he was manly as a man can be. And we see his manhood revealed in Holy Scripture. This Jesus came on a mission to this world. He came to save a people, his people, from their sins. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. He came to crush the head of that ancient dragon. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Ultimately, he came as a man to take a bride for himself, a bride made up of all nations, tribes, and languages. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. And Jesus accomplished all of this, saving a people from their sins, crushing the head of the dragon, taking for himself a bride by doing this. He died on a Roman cross. He was buried in a grave. He rose three days later. He ascended into heaven, and he reigns over all men. And from there, he gave his spirit to the church. Even more, from there, he washes us with the water of his word so that we might be holy and without blemish. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 26 and 27. What does all of this mean for the story we're telling? Well, it means everything. In this Jesus, we find our humanity restored. In this Jesus, we are finally brought back into the family of God, being called now sons and daughters of the Most High, never to be changed again. In this Jesus, we are once again called to dominion as kings and queens, and one day we will reign with Jesus over all things. In this Jesus, we are once again restored to family life, carrying out our calling as fathers and mothers, given the glorious task to build families and households that glorify our Father God. And brothers and sisters, as we meditate on this word of the gospel, it is no fairy tale. The word of the gospel is a word of power, the very power of God unto salvation, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. And the restoration of humanity is taking place even in the present. What God is doing through the word of the gospel is he's using it as an instrument. And through it, he he reaches into the world through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he's grabbing hold of men and women. And he is changing them, refashing them into the image of his glorious son that we might be truly human again. And look like Jesus. And as Paul assessed his own ministry... He was a preacher of the gospel, preaching it again and again and again. He saw God's power at work. This is no fairy tale. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Paul writes, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. We already heard that passage, clear condemnations, but what does Paul say now? Next, and he says this, and such were some of you. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he knows their story. Some of them were sexually immoral. Some of them were idolaters. Some of them were homosexuals. Some of them were thieves. Some of them were greedy. But the word of the gospel came and changed them from the inside out. And Paul says, such were some of you. 
You were washed, Paul says. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And brothers and sisters, the word of the gospel is not just a word of power, it's a word of hope. And it's a word of hope filled up to the brim and overflowing with it. We live in the smoldering ruins of humanity. It's all around us. But the gospel tells us there is a day coming when Jesus Christ himself, our bridegroom, will come for us. And on that day when Jesus comes, we will be joined to him forever, never to be separated again. And on that day when we see him, we shall be like him, fully restored to the glory that humanity should have. Sons and daughters, kings and queens, fathers and mothers. And when the scriptures anticipate this day, they begin to rejoice and they want us to rejoice. The book of Revelation says, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come. That's the hope. And so brothers and sisters, there you have the biblical story. We have ranged from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. From the very beginning, we reached as far back as we possibly can to Adam and Eve, and we've reached forward as far as we possibly can to the return of Jesus and dwelling with him forever. And with the telling of the story, I've done what Peter would have done. My hope is that this story, the truth presented in it, will stir you up. That's what we need in our day. We need to be freshly stirred up about the truth of the scriptures. That it would produce fidelity in our hearts to the truth of the scriptures as we live in this day. So in this first sermon, we ask, well, what ought we be doing right now? What does it look like? The flags are around us. The confusion reigns supreme. Well, hear this concluding call. Hold fast to the word of God. Hold fast to the word of God. And not only hold fast to it, but but treasure the word of God and the truths there. What the scriptures reveal are good for you. And as you meditate on them, they will give you light and joy. Do not only treasure them, but then proclaim them with your mouth. Because what our broken world needs is to hear the story of the scriptures presented from creation all the way to the end in the book of Revelation. Even more, believe it with all of your heart. We need to believe this with all of our heart. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we rejoice in the words of Scripture. There is no word like it. We ask now that you would give clarity to our minds and conviction to our hearts, that you would fill us with hope and joy that we belong to Jesus and that he is renewing us into his glorious image. And we shall soon see him face to face. We pray this in Jesus' good and gracious name. Amen.